Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Matt Bartolini, Managing Director and Head of Spider America's Research at State Street Global Advisors. Matt has a bird's eye 30,000 foot view to dozens of ETFs in the market landscape, and this includes State Street's leading sector exchange traded fund lineup. We talk with Matt about the opportunities in sector investing type of strategies, how to analyze thematic ETFs, where the relative value is in the market, and much more. Matt nails a closing question with the one lesson he'd give an individual investor. Hopefully you stick around to listen to the very end to hear what he has to share. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with State Street's Matt Bartolini. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. You have a pretty, I think, neat and cool job at State Street where you lead up uh, product research and analysis on the uh, spider ETFs and uh, funds. And so that's a lot of different ETFs and certainly a lot of assets, but I think it gives you like a really good vantage point to talk about a lot of the things that we're going to um, sort of get into today. And to start, what I thought we could do is focus on sectors at the beginning of this conversation. Um, just given your expertise, I think, with with sectors and the ETFs um, on these sectors. And maybe I could just ask you a couple questions so we could sort of set the stage, set, set, set the landscape for um, our listeners, which you know mostly are retail investors. So some of these questions, they may seem a little basic, um, but I think it will help sort of educate um, you know, investors around sectors. Yeah, I mean, look, sector investing is something very crucial to the broader State Street business, but also like academically, there's been a lot of literature on it. And I think there's also a lot of just more education that could be done on sort of the power of sector investing overall, but also like how it actually impacts markets and what, how it actually contributes to returns. And it's also just sort of just fun to talk about it, like what's working well, you know, what's sort of driving the market's narrative, whether it's financials, technology. So I always love this topic, um, particularly as it relates to broad market commentary, but also just ETFs in general. I mean, the sector ETF range that's out there, you know, it's billions of assets and utilized by a multitude of different investors, levered investors, you know, CTAs, Delta hedging, long only. Um, so it's just a great topic. In terms of where we are today, like what what sectors are make up most of the market and how, from your view, has this sort of changed and sort of um, evolved over time? Yeah, so right now, um, the top three sectors are healthcare, consumer discretionary, and technology. They basically make up around 52% of the overall S&P 500 index, which is actually quite concentrated. You know, we haven't actually been this concentrated ever before. You know, prior to 2019, you know, so really the first time was in 2020 then. Um, before that, you know, there really wasn't the top three sectors were, did not make over 50% of the S&P 500, and now they do. Um, you know, back in the early 90s, it was less clustered. You, know, you had the top weight of top sector, I think, was like energy. It was only about 13%. So when we look at the concentration of it, it's definitely become more concentrated. You know, like I said, the top three is over 50%. But even when we look at the bottom, you know, there's basically four sectors with a below uh, 3% weight. You know, that really hasn't happened before. 
So we're definitely becoming more concentrated. Now, this obviously has changed over time. Like I said, in the early 90s, it was less concentrated. You know, the max weight was around 13%. Uh, it was definitely more focused on industrial areas of the marketplace. So industrials, energy, those are some of the highest weights in the S&P 500. Um, so it has changed, but we're actually starting to see more clustering, right? So while the top three right now is healthcare, tech, and consumer discretionary, you know, in the last five years, it's really just been migrating through a couple of other sectors. So tech has always been there, but healthcare has fall, fall, fallen out before. Communication services has come in. Financials has gone into the marketplace. But really, that sort of top three to four sectors have been quite consistent, I'd say, probably the last three to four years overall. And that concentration continues to build. Yeah, I found it amazing when, I don't know if it was at the low in the pandemic, but it's still the case now, like you said, with like how low energy had gotten in terms of its you know overall weighting in the market um how that had fallen from something like i don't know if it was eight or ten percent to maybe less than three percent when you when you think about all these big energy companies that were big at one time exxon mobile etc yeah i mean exxon was the largest company in the s p 500 and, and now it, i think it's out of the top 100. could you discuss i i think there was a change that was made where was it communication services was added as a sector yeah, so it's strange, right? The you know the GICS map um, really hadn't changed in many years, and then in 2016 it started to modernize a bit. So you, the first change was real estate getting carved out of financials, which makes a lot of sense. Real estate companies offer you know have a very different economic structure than banks do. Uh, they have different macro sensitivities, and that was pulled out. And real estate was about 20% of financials at the time. So when you pull it out on a standalone basis, it's about 3% of the S&P 500, which is kind of where it is today. The bigger change, though, happened in 2018 when consumer discretionary, technology, and legacy telecom were all impacted. So what happened was legacy telecom stocks folded into this new sector called communication services, but then about a quarter of consumer discretionary, so 20, about 24% of the market cap in, in consumer discretionary, was pulled out, and it was mainly these sort of legacy media companies like Disney, which I guess is more of a streaming media company now, um, but you know, Netflix was pulled out and put into communication services. Similar in tech, you have these software companies that are mainly focused on search protocol, social media. So Twitter, Google, those were pulled out of tech. So basically about 20% of the tech market cap and put into communication services. The amount of securities that was impacted was about 10% of the overall S&P 500 market capitalization at that time. And it created communication services sector which at the time, which is still today, it's moved around, but it's still the, it's the fourth largest sector. So what I think is interesting is like if that change didn't happen, and it made a lot of sense, right? Netflix should not be in the same sector as Macy's. Like they are, they just have completely different operating structures. Right. Um, but if that didn't change, didn't happen, technology would be even more uh, of the S and P five hundred right now, right? Because you have Google, you have Twitter in there, have, uh, Facebook, another one. Um, so I think it was a very necessary change and just reflects the modernization that took place back in 2018. Mm -hmm. And who, who actually makes those decisions? Yeah. So GICS is a, um, uh, an organization or a structure that's managed and operated by jointly by MSCI and S and P and their index committees will make the recommendations on what, you know, the mapping should be and where the sub industries lie. Um, like any other index change, they will consult asset managers. They'll do an index consultation. So we will obviously weigh in on those. 
um, on what if it makes sense or not, you know, mainly from a sort of portfolio implementation perspective, liquidity, uh, but also just from an investment theory perspective as well. Mm -hmm. um, just going on the last question here for this part is um, going back to that level of concentration you mentioned, you know, is that something, is there any research or evidence that shows either when you get that concentrated um, from a sector perspective, or even if a company becomes one of the largest, let's say top 10 companies in the market, is there anything that indicates that that's kind of a bad sort of future sign for the performance of either that, that sector or that company? Like I'm just thinking of, you know, if you kind of think of the past 10 years, probably the top 10 companies in the S&P have continued to be really strong performers, and most of them are the FANG stocks, you know? Um, so I, I don't know, is there just any research that either supports or, or debunks that? So I haven't really come across anything that is more than anecdotal, right? Because a lot of people sort of point back to like 1999, tech was about 30% of the S&P 500, and then, oh, look what happened. Uh, financials were the largest sector prior to 2008, oh, look what happened. You know, those two events will definitely skew some of the returns. I mean, if you look at it, like, on an average go-forward return basis, I mean, those are the two worst periods of a market for those respective sectors of all time. But when you just sort of look at it from 2011 onwards, tech has been the largest sector in the S&P 500, not owning technology or having some sort of indicator that would say, hey, look, I should be selling the, the highest-weighted sector when it becomes, you know, the, the top weight. That obviously would not have worked out well. So I think largely what we've seen is more anecdotal commentary of like you need to be weary of all of a sudden there is high concentration risk. Um, but I think there really isn't anything empirical that says, you know, when something breaks over 20% of the S&P 500 market cap from a sector perspective, perhaps there's some froth because, you know, that really hasn't played out. Like I said, tech's been, you know, above 20%, I think for the last, yeah, I think last easily four years. Before we get into the details of sector investing, I just wanted to ask you about some of the advantages of the approach in general. Um, you know, if you sort of look at the range of investment approaches, on one side, you've got index investing. On the other side, extreme, you've got stock picking. And sector investing seems to fall a little bit in the middle of that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the advantages of sector investing. Yeah, so, you know, it's sort of the old cliche of being active with passive instruments, like sector investing. They're, they're basically, sectors are market exposures. I mean, ETFs, if you sort of even just boil it down to the wrapper, they're just market exposures, right? And you're gaining access to those. Sectors are market exposures that cover, you know, economic sectors where firms have similar revenue profiles and similar relationships to macro indicators like rates, inflation, oil, um, economic ac uh, indicators like the leading economic indicator from the conference board. Um, when we think about sector investing and sort of the potential for, you know, alpha generation by rotating among different segments, we sort of, it boils down to high dispersion. So it's a high disperse um, market segment. So you have 11 economic sectors. The return difference between the best and the worst can actually be quite high. And that high level of dispersion is really only spread across 11 different instruments, right? So it's high dispersion and low breadth. And that's somewhat in a nutshell. And then from there, you can employ, you know, quant or fundamental type techniques across these sectors to overweight or underweight and really harness some of that dispersion. And the dispersion in returns is much greater than you actually find in specific, say, styles, like growth, value, large, small cap. So I think the long-term median 
sector dispersion, you know, the last, I think, 20, 25 years is around 16%. Um, you have for styles, it's about 7%. So almost like double, you know, more than double from that perspective. There's also more dispersed return environment than countries. So a single country's exposures. If you look at the G10, just as an example, they basically have a dispersion of around 10% from a long-term median perspective. Um, so you have this highly dispersed return environment. Clearly it's not as dispersed as S&P 500 single stocks, but it's quite dispersed from uh, other sort of instruments to rotate through, and it's only across 11 different areas of the market. And what we usually find is that sectors are really the big driver of risk. So when you decompose the variance in returns in a risk model, sectors are quite a big proponent of the driver of that variance in returns. And I think you actually see this when you start constructing factor-based strategies. You know, a lot of them out there now are, you know, sector neutral to try to neutralize those sector effects. And, you know, really let sort of that factor, whether it's value or momentum, sort of power the overall returns. So we like this idea that sectors are a really powerful instrument to harness this high dispersed return environment in a way where you do have differentiated correlations across the sectors. So the, the intra-correlations are quite different. You know, utilities has a low correlation to technology and so on and so forth. And what that does is sort of create an environment where you then can utilize different screens or different types of strategies to potentially provide some sort of alpha generation. And we sort of view these around like four distinct um, areas, right? So top down. So using macro inputs such as you know oil, rates, inflation to see where you are in sort of the business cycle to then make allocations. Or you can use a bottom-up analysis where you know similar to traditional stock picking you can create a portfolio that's based on cheap inexpensive sectors or, or you know sectors that have strong earning sentiment or more quality metrics. Then you have that sort of the third one is around technicals where you know, you can look at momentum or RSI or crossovers, trend following, even in some cases, you know, maybe a low volatility sector portfolio. Then the last one we always talk about is just thematic investing. And that's not really what you see, like, where I'm not talking thematics like clean energy or smart transportation. I'm more talking about like, okay, there's a move in interest rates. How can I sort of position my overall book to participate in this? You know, obviously on the fixed income side, you mitigate duration. But on the equity side, maybe you buy something that's highly correlated to rates and you take that sort of thematic bet. You talked about those concepts of uh, correlation and dispersion, and you wrote a piece recently where you said th those might even be more important right now, and th they might be a big advantage for sector investing right now. I wonder if you could talk about why that is. Yeah, so, and this goes along the same lines around traditional, just active management. You want to find a highly dispersed return environment with low correlations. So simply put, a high dispersion environment is a, an area where you know um, you could potentially generate alpha from overweighting specific areas that are leading and underweighting the laggards. And on the correlation side, a low pairwise correlation across assets indicates that stocks or sectors are moving more indiscriminately from another, and there's not one single driver. So high dispersion says that it's more of a alpha abundant market. Low correlation will indicate that is more idiosyncratic and it's not so macro driven. And when I wrote that back in March, those two factors were actually quite constructive for sector investing. They were well above in terms of dispersion on the median, they're well above their long-term median and correlations were below. They sort of come back in a little bit, but it still remains a dispersed return environment with low correlation. So you know, sector rotation um, still continues to have those at, at their back from a tailwind perspective. 
I've seen a couple different approaches to sector rotation. You know, on one side, I've seen people use, you know, the factors you mentioned to say, all right, let me find the best sectors. And on the other side, it's more, you know, let me hold the sectors at market weights, but let me get rid of the worst ones. I'm wondering, have you seen any research that favors one of those or the other or what the disadvantages and advantages of them are? So there's a lot of research out there on the ways to construct sector investing. I don't think there's one sort of, you know, golden type portfolio that you would want to construct. It's obviously based on philosophical tendencies. Um, you know, I think what I typically see the most of is trend following momentum based sector portfolios. Uh, and there's a lot of literature to support that. I actually think, uh, there's a paper, I think it's titled Relative Strength Strategies for Investing from Meb Faber. And it's very, very straightforward looking at, you know, different momentum screens going back to 1928 and just, you know, trying to understand like, okay, if you hold two stock, two sectors, three sectors, four sectors, what does the return environment look for? And in the end, the end result is that there's a high amount of efficacy in sort of this type of trend following um, or relative strength type of investing within sectors and capturing that dispersed environment. But there's other ones too. There's another paper, um, Sector Momentum. Uh, it's by, I think, Wang, Liu, and Holzauer. Probably butchering that last name. Um, but with a name like Bartolini, I feel like I have the right to sort of butcher people's names, considering mine's been butchered for years and will continue to be. Um, I think one of the more interesting papers, though, is uh, was it Industry-Based Alternative Equity Indices by Leclerc. It actually looked at utilizing sectors, and it used, I would say, I'd refer to like in-sample data, because it used, you know, sector ETFs, so it didn't go all the way back to like Fama French data, it actually used like identifiable prices, so I, you know, use it in air quotes, in-sample, even though you're looking at a back test, um, and it tried to build low volatility portfolios, and did it in a way in like low beta or minimum variance, so there's so many different ways to construct different sector rotation strategies. Um, and you can even blend things together like value, uh, earnings, momentum, sentiment uh, from that perspective. We come from the world of factor investing. And you know, when, when you ask people, can I buy something like value when it's out of favor? They'll say, oh yeah, you definitely could do that. But then we say, can you time factors? Oh no, you definitely cannot do that. You know, a lot of the academic research tends to say factor timing is very difficult. I'm wondering what the research says about sector timing. Has, has there been a lot of research that says, you know, can you get an excess return using sector timing? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of those papers that I just discussed definitely indicate that, you know, sector timing, um, sector rotation is definitely definitely a high efficacy approach to generating some form of potential alpha. Um, if you just go to, you know, SSRN and type in sector rotation, you'll definitely find a lot of different academic studies, some going back to like 89 when the GICS map was developed, some using Fama French data to 1928 and, you know, applying some form of strategy. Um, I think the difference between factor rotation and sector rotation is, you know, factors, we just you know, sort of use it at the basic level, you know, you probably have six factors to rotate across. Um, you, you don't have as a dispersed return environment. You actually probably have sector effects maybe impacting those returns, um, you know, depending on how those factors are constructed. You also have some dilution because, you know, you're, you're, likely using an ETF, which is a long, lonely format that has to, you know, abide by diversification rules. You know, perhaps if you can do it in more of a quintile spread basis, there's some, you know, potential approach there. But sectors, high, it's probably saying like, you know, on, on repeat here, but very dispersed return environment across 11 sectors that behave very differently from each other, depending on the macro environment. And that actually leads to some potential outperformance, you know, 
over a long time frame by rotating based on some form of signals. You've talked about all the three major approaches to sector rotation, you know, valuation, momentum, or some sort of macro factors. And I'm wondering, you've, you've cited some papers that say momentum seems to work pretty well. I'm wondering, do you think all three of those work? I mean, do you think all three of them have a place in a sector rotation strategy? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, the value premium, obviously well identified, you know, has, has shown persistency. Obviously the last decade was sort of rough. Um, you know, we, you know, internally at State Street, uh, we do run sector rotation strategies that screen based on value, sentiment, and momentum. Uh, you know, so we feel that those factors from a sector perspective can be, you know, rewarded. Uh, and even if we just sort of, and this isn't our own screen, you know, just proprietary, but if we just very quickly take a look at, you know, what's the, you know, com combinatory portfolio of sectors that have high momentum, cheap valuations and, and positive earnings sentiment right now, it would be energy, financials, and materials. Now, that portfolio, you know, hypothetically, right, um, would be down 6% year-to-date, no, 6% month-to-date, just given the, the move against cyclical assets. But it's up 2% um, year-to-date, and the active risk relative to the S&P 500, you know, it, it it's going to be explained a lot by sectors. So it has about a that again, like this sort of paper portfolio idea of those three sectors right now is basically like a 14% active risk versus the S&P 500. So that's quite a bit. 70% of it is going to be explained by sectors, but another 30% are going to be explained by factors. And, you know, while that is obviously, you know, if you're trying to build a, a factor-based portfolio, maybe it should be higher, but again, sectors are a big driver of returns. Um, but underneath the factor exposures that are driving that variance are the ones that you're keying in on. So value and momentum and, and sentiment. So you have the ability to construct the portfolios from that perspective and get the intended factor exposure, but you're doing it as a selection criteria. You're not trying to harness the value premium. You're using it as sort of a quantitative selection process. Have you looked at all at the macro stuff? So, you know, you'll see people create like a four quadrant system where they'll say, here's inflation, here's growth. And, you know, in this quadrant, you want to own this sector. And in this quadrant, you want to own this sector. Do you think that's an effective approach? So, you know, macro is interesting. There's so many different ways to approach it. Some, again, just look at, you know, rates and inflation will, you know, buy, um, you know, financials, right? If interest rates going up. Largely, that's more, I think, of a sentiment play than macro because, if rates are going up, financials have positive performance because the view is that they'll likely have higher earnings as a result of wider net interest margins. Similar with energy, when oil is going up, energy earnings expectations increase. You know, we, and we see we see investors allocate like that, right? So we this year, financials and energy, even though they've been sort of hit hard in July, uh, they still lead in terms of flows. But when we think about it, sort of a business cycle approach, business cycle investing is tough. And we always get the question of, you know, hey, what, what works well in a slowdown or a recession? And we actually did some research on it that's out on our website. And because the GICS map only goes back to 89, there's not a lot of economic cycles to study. So we had to use Fama French data using these sub-industries that they have there. We actually sort of, you know, Frankensteined our, what the GICS sector would look like using the Fama French industry portfolios. And then studied from 1960 onwards the relationship of sectors relative to the U.S. Conference Board's leading economic indicators, the year-over-year -year change. You would say, okay, here's a slowdown, here's a recession. And, you know, what we found was, okay, on average, healthcare works well in a slowdown and recession, as you would expect, right? It's more defensive, similar with consumer staples, financials does well in an expansionary market environment. 
However, it's all on average. And the example that we used, because someone said, well, these returns look great. Why wouldn't I just follow this as a model? And it's because if you did so in 2016, you're like, okay, the LEI says we're going to slow down, which we were. Um, you would have allocated healthcare. Well, healthcare was down 4% in 2016 because all of a sudden during the 2016 election cycle, price, price gouging fears on drug companies were a main market narrative. So purely business cycle investing has to deal with a lot of exogenous variables that can impact the return irrespective of what the business cycle looks like. So we always like to think of it as more of a, a component to any sort of model, understanding what the macro regime looks like. But something on a standalone basis, there's going to be so many other factors that would dictate performance. Even if, you know, after a 10-year expansion, perhaps financials do work better, there's going to be periods of, of underperformance, too. Matt, moving um, beyond sectors uh, for a minute, you um, wrote a good piece. It was in December of last year where you tried to, um, you know, ask the question, you know, how would we evaluate uh, thematic based ETFs and the point you were sort of making in the articles when you look at the 150 or so, you know, new ETF, or, uh, yeah, new ETFs that I think were uh, issued, you know, a significant portion of those were sort of thematic and either growth oriented, basically strategies. And, you know, I think you use the example, you wouldn't want to use price to book um, necessarily to look at like the, the, the soundness or assess those types of holdings in those strategies or ETFs. So can you just kind of talk through how you sort of approached it and maybe some of the findings that you came up with? Yeah. So obviously in 2020, thematic ETFs really took center stage from an investor perspective, took in a record amount of flows. In 2021, they're still doing quite well from a flow perspective. There's so much attention paid to it. And there's really, anytime something new comes into the market, there needs to be education. And so we were constantly getting questions about like, how, how should I value or evaluate, you know, a thematic portfolio of innovative stocks. And because when I look at it on a price to earnings basis, you know, at a PE of like, you know, 42, like this looks really expensive. And so we sought to answer that question. You know, obviously there's a lot of growth oriented names in these innovative portfolios. I think 124 out of the 145 uh, funds that are out there have more than half of their exposure in quote unquote growth stocks. So, and we look at it from a sector perspective, they also have a high amount of healthcare, technology, and consumer discretionary, so high a lot of intangibles. And as you know, like different valuation metrics are not suitable for certain segments. So, um, if we look at price to earnings, one of the drawbacks is some of these companies are really new and they actually might not be profitable, right? They might not actually have earnings. So with negative earnings, you get screened out of the PE ratio, you actually get dropped. So it's gonna actually have an impact and will you know actually not be 100% accurate. Price the book, you know, actually solves for the negative earnings problem. But then if you have a high amount of intangibles, it also creates another problem, right? Um, so we we went through all these different metrics. You know, we looked at price to earnings growth ratios. So peg ratios has the same problem. Negative earnings companies get screened out. We ultimately landed on enterprise value to sales. Uh, one, it's sort of capital structure agnostic because you use the enterprise value. Sales should be positive. I've never come across a public company that has negative sales. So that helps from that perspective. Um, you know, the one drawback is it has, it might not work well with industries with different margins, but given that there's a lot of concentration in specific sectors like tech, healthcare, some of that can be mitigated. So we end up 
finding out is that if you're eva evaluating thematic strategies, you, know, you shouldn't just solely rely or go by a standard of like price to earnings, but actually go more towards something that is perhaps what less well known of like enterprise value to sales. Because it actually might give you a more fair and accurate reading of what the underlying valuations are. What I liked about that too, in that article you had sort of this table with the, each metric, some of the you just talked about, and then the strength and both the weakness for the metric on thematic ETFs. So that's a good sort of shortcut for people that wanna, and we'll put a link to the, um, that article uh, in the show notes. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, and this was from a few months ago, so, but I don't think it's probably changed that much, is you sort of tried to look at where the relative value is you know, in the market in general versus U.S. versus international and maybe large versus small. And, um, you know, you tried to stack up where where there might be some relative value. So can you just maybe highlight some of the findings from that paper? And if anything has changed considerably, I don't think it probably has, but maybe it has. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, we're all always getting this question around what looks cheap right now on an absolute basis, really nothing. Uh, but on a relative basis, a lot of different things. Uh, and we actually publish a, a quantitative scorecard every month that walks the evaluation, earning, and sentiment so investors and clients can make their own assessment. And we always use a composite approach for valuation metrics because it's going to you know, reduce some of those corner solutions, You know, particularly if you just use price to book, technology is going to have it be skewed by the right high intangibles and things along those lines. Um, and when we look at it right now, currently on a percentile basis, across PE, uh, four 12-month PE, price to book and price to sales, financials are all in the bottom decile relative to the S&P 500 uh, in the past 15 years. So financials screen is inexpensive. Similarly, energy and, and materials as well. So, you know, it shouldn't be that big of a surprise. Those are traditional value sort of type sectors. You know, if you look at the S&P 500 value index, the market cap weighted, which I know, you know, it's not a pure factor exposure, but um, you know, highly concentrated in those those type of names. So you know, value investors, you know, would probably, if that was your only screen, be sitting in just energy, financials, and materials right now. Um, for the most part, like discretionary and tech, they're all in the top ninetieth percentile. Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to, as we get towards the close here, I wanted to ask you, you know, every time you have a market that runs up like the one we have now, you always get the arguments, you know, this time is different. Um, and then usually it's not really different, but there are a couple of things I want to ask you about that, that might be different about this time. And I just wanted to get your thoughts as someone who studied the market on them. You know, one is this idea that the market is faster moving now. So it's more narrative driven option dealers are more important. You know, you've got retail traders there. I mean, do you think there's any lasting impact from that on the way the market works? Or do you think that's just noise that your average investor needs to ignore if they're a long-term investor? Yeah, I mean, a bit of a hard question. You know, I, I, there's been some great work done on this. I know Corey Hofstein had a great piece on liquidity cascades that showed some of the inner workings of that. Um, and we, you know, we, we do see options uh, hedging, gamma hedging impacting the market, you know, clearly in terms of market drops and sort of being somewhat of a buffer. Uh, we see a lot in ETFs. So ETFs that have a high amount of options book. Uh, when dealers are short gamma, you know, and there's a big run up in the market, there's actually flows related to some of the gamma hedging related. Um, so to some extent, you know, that is playing a part. Overall, my feeling is that we've had more micro bursts of volatility due to the fragility of the market that has really become reliant on Fed intervention. There's also, you know, the impact of, you know, commodity trading advisors, so CTAs, options, other sort of risk parity and volatility 
um, targeting type um, strategies, but that's that's really at the macro level. Um, you know, vol volatility has also become less autocorrelated than it has been historically, and but that's been occurring for years now. Uh, I I really think sort of this idea of microbursts of volatility sort of started around the 2014, 2015 period. We started to see more sharp drawdowns followed by sharp rallies. And I think that speaks to how the Fed was, was working back then, but also some of the emergence of new and different types of strategies. I think, you know, that's largely at a macro level. You know, at the micro level, firms that can generate strong cash flows likely should be rewarded over the long time, or over the long term, I should say. And you know, there's there's basically a reason why Apple, Microsoft, and Google are so big. You know, they generate a lot of cash. They people like to buy their stuff. Um, so there can be some macro short-term noise that dissuades from the long term. But ultimately, if you can generate cash flow, that should be you know a, a sound fundamental strategy you know for investors. It's been interesting because you see this, you know, the market tends to be very, very steady. You know, you get dispersion around it, but the S&P is kind of really steady. Then you get this big blow up. Then we're right back to steady again. So it's, you know, it's sort of been an interesting market to watch. I mean, I don't know for long-term investors if that really changes their strategy at all, but it's definitely for those of us watching it every day, it's been very interesting to watch. Oh, yeah. I mean, even just, you know, in the, you know, in the past week or so, you had these huge drawdowns, market rallied back right away. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, across our sector and industry lineup, we have 32 different ETFs. Uh, on one of the days, uh, there was only one ETF in that segment. Again, very dispersed, you know, market. Only one of them had positive returns. The next day, all 32 had positive returns. That has only happened 3%, no, less than 1% of the time in the last six years. So, you know, there's some fragility in the marketplace. And the other thing I want to ask you about is the other this time is different argument, which is this whole idea of fiscal stimulus. I mean, we've had monetary stimulus for a long time now, but it seems as though the government is probably going to continue giving money to people. And it seems like that might be a substantial change. But in terms of an investment strategy, from an investment strategy standpoint, do you think there's anything your average investor needs to think about with that? Or do you think that's, again, maybe some just noise that will you know, maybe not affect what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, a higher debt burden basically suppresses the real rate of return. And that's going to likely induce more risk taking for investors to achieve what typically you could have just gotten in treasuries. Right. So you're going to induce more risk taking to get higher returns, higher growth. I think it's one of the reasons why over the last you know, decade or so growth strategies have done so well. When the market is devoid of growth, investors will buy growth. I think where we are now you know, when we look out on the recovery more of a short-term basis, you know, there's a, a case for growth at more of a reasonable price, right? Because valuations have become stretched. But I think overall, what will happen is as investors try to seek out a higher return environment, that's going to spark more interest in like private markets and other alternative assets that might be more or less correlated and are really trying to pick up on some of that illiquidity, you know, illiquidity premium. Um, and, you know, largely that's just going to have an impact on diversification because, you know, a higher debt burden, um, you know, that's kind of low. We have a low interest rates that's going to impact fixed income. So what's going to happen is fixed income in order to get that high, higher yield that you're accustomed to, you're going to have to take on more credit risk, which is equity sensitive, and that's just going to have an impact on your overall diversification. So it has meaningful impacts to it in terms of how you structure portfolios to generate you know, a return above inflation, which is you can't find that right now in the bond market unless you step into credit.
You, you actually just touched on my next question because uh, you wrote a piece about this. Um, you know, everybody seems to be searching for yield right now. And obviously, interest rates are exceptionally low. And obviously, one of the pitfalls of searching for yield is with higher yield typically comes risk. So I'm wondering what you found when you wrote that piece about maybe some areas where investors could get higher yield right now. Yeah, so right now, you know, if you're looking for like over 4% yield, there's really not many markets, you know, and, you know, even just back in 2018, the ag itself was like 3 3.5% yield. But now the ag yields somewhere like 150 or so, like, you know, around there. Uh so you have to take on some form of credit risk. And in our view, you know, credit high yield, traditional high yield is quite stretched from a valuations perspective because of the rally. Uh, so going into something more niche or esoteric like loans actually has been somewhat beneficial, not only from a duration perspective, because duration is quite low, but you get a yield above 4%, and the market is not a stretch. The average price of a senior loan uh, security is about 98, where on a traditional high yield is about 104. Uh, we've also talked about emerging market local debt, and there... You're getting a higher yield, but your risk profile is really driven by currency. So you're somewhat diversifying your sources of risk, which I think is beneficial when you're trying to also, you know, guard against a, a deterioration in diversification. Um, what we have found is that uh, there's a 93% correlation between the monthly returns of emerging market local currency debt and emerging market local currency. So there's a lot of currency risk associated with that. So those are some areas that we've been talking with a lot of investors about because it is such a huge problem among everyone that's trying to get, you know, some form of yield that they used to be accustomed to. Yeah, and think of like the 60-40 like portfolio given where valuations are and given where, where yields are. I mean, that seems like it's, even though that thing's been a beast over the last like three decades, it's just, it seems like your traditional 60-40 is, you know, it could, it could be in trouble here if we sort of get some inflation, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I I could be off by like maybe a couple percentile, but I would I want to say right now the standard sixty forty portfolio yields the lowest amount on record because of how low fixed income yields are, but how expensive equity markets are, and obviously you know dividend yield price is the denominator, um, and that that has a severe impact. You know, standard sixty forty has had great returns recently. Uh, last year it did quite well and, you know, diversification's there. But in terms of income generation, that ship has sailed. So our, uh, well, first of all, this has been, this has been great, Matt. You're, I think that the level of knowledge and the depth of knowledge is, is pretty, pretty, it's pretty awesome. So, so, but we want to ask you one last, uh, our standard closing question, um, which is based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Uh, I would say be part goldfish and part elephant. So goldfish have an incredibly short memory. Uh, elephants have an incredibly long memory. Uh, researchers have shown that you uh, elephants can actually recognize enemies and friends over a long time frame. So when the market falls by 4% on a single day, be like a goldfish, kind of look past it and just forget it because Typically what we found, and again, I, the stack could be off by one or two days, but you know, when the market has its 10 worst days, it's typically followed by its 10 best days. Then sort of be like an elephant. Understand that over the long time frame, there's certain premiums in the market that has been rewarded. Diversification has a long history of being beneficial to overall portfolios. 
So definitely take that long view, have that long memory of what has historically worked. So I always sort of think about it, you know, be part goldfish, be part elephant. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, we actually tell we actually tell our kids on the baseball team to be like goldfish when they strike out. So there you go. You're right. Don't go don't go crying onto the bench. <laughs> it's okay, you know. Forget about it and get back up there. So if people want to learn more about uh, your research, what you're working on, what you're interested in, where can they find out more on you? So I would just go to ssga.com uh, under the ETF section. You know, there's insights. Uh, you can go to our insights page, just even right on ssga.com, and you can find a lot of the works that we have uh, out there. We actually have a separate landing page or, or partition of the website just dedicated to sectors. So definitely check that out too. Uh, there's a lot of great information out there, and we're constantly posting uh, market commentary, thought leadership, portfolio construction, uh, all those things. Great. Well, Matt, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.